Welcome to this special Travels with Torpy episode. In this sub-series, we'll check out some of the places I'm traveling to or have traveled to, discussing some of the experiences and reflections I've had, and how some of those tie into the larger themes that we discuss in my show, Rethinking with Alex Torpy, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube, or online at RethinkingWithAlexTorpy.com. Don't forget to check out the full series when you have a chance to, and if you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing, or sharing with a friend. Enjoy. everyone. Uh, welcome to another Travels with Torpy episode. Uh, this is a special one. I'm coming to you from the Custer Gallatin uh, National Forest in Montana. I'm at the East Rosebud uh, Lake Campground, and I'll show you a little bit of kind of where I am right here. It is uh, pretty stunning. You'll probably see there's a bunch of pictures and things on Instagram uh, and elsewhere uh, of some of the sites here. Um, and actually, this episode right here is not actually about Montana, um, but it is about North Dakota, about Fargo specifically. Um, and just mind, if you are uh, listening to this or watching this, there's probably going to be a little bit of wind noise. I think I've got that mostly under control here, um, but I'm sure it won't be perfect. It is pretty windy here, although it is a beautiful day. Um, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about Fargo. Um, and so I, as I've been making my way across the country, um, I stopped in Fargo, North Dakota for a few days. So I have a, a friend and a colleague there um, who's in the state legislature for four years um, and was the uh, chair of the state party for the, the Dem NPL party in North Dakota. And um, we met many, many years ago through a friend, a journalist, uh, John Seelock, um, who might be listening or watching um, this. And uh, so Kylie and I have kind of been in touch over the years. And, um, you know, like with a lot of young elected officials, obviously it's really hard. Um, And it's not just sort of hard from a policy and program perspective, but it's hard from a personal perspective. Um, And having some people who are kind of going through some of the same things that you're going through, um, it really helps having that support network there. Um, And so we've been in touch over the years and actually showed around New Jersey uh, many years ago. So anyway, I made it out to Fargo and um, spend some time Uh, with some different folks in Fargo exploring the city a little bit, uh, hanging out with her and uh, seeing some things. And so I wanted to share some of that um, with you all and some reflections on some broader issues um, that I was sort of trying to learn a little bit about as I was out there. Um, And so I should say at first, this is not an overview of North Dakota or an overview of Fargo. I'm not an expert by any stretch. You know, I was only there for a few days. Um, I do think I have a couple interesting things to share, but, um, you know, this is not a sort of uh, Fargo 101 episode or anything like that. So first, um, you know, I kind of liked uh, getting into Fargo. I mean, the, the Midwestern cities and some of the Southern cities as well, it's just so different than the Northeast, so easy to kind of get in and out of, um, you know, compared to some of the cities that I'm used to um, around New York and New Jersey. Um, there was lots of uh, good food with some local options, uh, things that were sourced locally, um, although there's not, doesn't, there didn't appear to be a ton of farming. There's a lot of ranching. Um, and a couple, uh, and a lot of sort of large-scale agriculture for some the more major crops, um, but not a lot, not as much like in the, you know, New Jersey region or the Catskills in New York where you've just got like farms on every corner growing all sorts of fruits and vegetables and different things. Um, but there was a lot of good local beer, so I got the sense that, um, you know, some of the ingredients there, the corn, barley, hops, things like that, um, were, were part of the kind of agriculture scene in North Dakota. 
I'm going to interrupt myself here as I may do a few times in this episode. Now, when I got back to the connected world, um, I did double check that uh, information in North Dakota's agriculture is indeed mostly these sort of larger staple crops such as wheat, corn, uh, barley, also soy, um, as well as the uh, ranching and cattle industry. And I did include a link um, in the description if you want to learn a little bit more uh, about that. The sidewalks were wide, parking was ample, uh, beautiful tree-lined streets. Um, seeing a lot of that um, out of the Northeast. I mean, there's obviously some beautiful places in the Northeast that do a really great job kind of keeping spaces green, but I mean, even Chicago as a really large city was much more green than I'm used to. Um, and so I was staying in an Airbnb uh, in Fargo, which actually worked out really well because I ended up getting into a pretty long uh, chat with my uh, one, of, one of the uh, hosts at the Airbnb. Um, and it turns out that he was very involved in the community, um, on the Neighborhood Association, and as well, uh, working for an organization that helped connect uh, senior citizens to, excuse me, to volunteer opportunities, which not only provides a great, uh, you know, sort of benefit for the places that they're plugging into, whoever they're helping, but it also provides a really great benefit for them. And so I'm actually going to do a short episode um, just about that. Um, Ken and I conducted, uh, you know, or did had a discussion um, about some of those things. That's something that's come up in a lot of the towns that I've worked with. A lot of the communities I visited is people trying to uh, find volunteers, find new volunteers, and get people engaged. There's a sense that um, in a lot of communities you can't find volunteers anymore which I don't think is the case. You just have to find them through some different and sort of specific means um, and make sure that you're providing them, you know, really valuable opportunities. So that's what Ken and I talked about a little bit. Um, and so there'll be a separate episode about that. Um, but that was cool. One of the reasons I really like Airbnb um, is, is experiences like that, which I've had quite a number of times as I've traveled in different places. Um, now, I had a bunch of kind of meetings and conversations with different people uh, around Fargo, some that were sort of set up and some that were just sort of happenstance. Um, so I'll start with one, which is um, a conversation I had with um, Adam Martin from um, F5, which is a criminal justice uh, kind of um, uh, advocacy reform support organization. Um, and uh, they not only provide support for people uh, coming out of prison for kind of reentry back into um, society and the economy and everything, but they also do a lot of other things, which I'll get into more in a moment. Um, now, this is an issue that I think a lot of us um, probably think about and care about to some degree. Um, it's something I certainly was aware of a bunch of dynamics of, but I learned a couple interesting things here too. And there's nothing that could have kind of communicated the importance of it more than the fact that, um, I didn't know this until afterwards, but literally as Adam and I are sitting um, in a coffee shop uh, in downtown Fargo, uh, down the street from that, uh, there was an individual who was in court, um, and after having received a prison sentence, I'm not sure for how long or for what crime, um, apparently uh, committed suicide and killed themselves in the courtroom right there, right after the sentencing. They had somehow brought um, something in and, um, from what I understood, uh, slit their throat in the courtroom. Um, and so I don't know the more details of, of that, um, I'll see if I can look that up uh, after I record this, but um, you know that just sort just sort of a reminder of, of I don't I don't know exactly what the circumstances there, but that's not right in in so many different ways. So what F five does is all these different things. You can look them up online. I'll include a link in the description. And so this includes providing housing as well as connecting people to housing, connecting people to employment opportunities, 
um, and providing kind of recovery services for people with uh, mental health or um, addiction issues um, and a kind of wide range of other things. And um, what I should also say, uh, what follows here is just my personal opinions and reflections on some of the things that I was learning about um, as I learned about some of the issues that F5 was working on, as well as some of the services that they provided to their community. This is a huge, a huge, huge problem, bigger probably than most of us realize. Um, the prison system and the criminal justice system in the United States um, has some really serious problems and some incentives that are either backwards or don't work towards our goals. Um, we have the largest prison population in the world by far. Um, and I don't personally think that uh, <laughs> that's a reflection on the fact that Americans are any worse people than anybody else. Um, it's a reflection on how the system is set up and who is benefiting from people being imprisoned. Um, you know, we have something like 2% of the world population, but more than 20% of the world's prison population. I'm going to uh, interrupt myself here, and when I got back to internet, I looked this up, and it is uh, slightly different than the numbers I gave. It's about 4% of the world population and about 25% of the prison population. Um, we treat minors differently than in a lot of other countries. We do a lot of things that a lot of other uh, Western countries don't do anymore. And in North Dakota specifically, uh, a state of somewhere around 700,000 people or so, more than 200,000 of them, as I understand it, have been in the prison or criminal justice system in some fashion or another. That is a huge, uh, huge percent. Um, and a lot of that, um, my understanding is the majority of that was for nonviolent drug offenses, many of which are probably not even offenses anymore in a lot of states. Um, that have been legalizing marijuana. So now there's been things over the years, and, and this is a huge problem where people get into the system. Not only are we as taxpayers paying for all of that, right? We are, prison is not cheap um, uh, to, to provide for people in it, nor is all the court systems and each step of the process, the law enforcement step, the court steps, the prison steps, the steps afterwards with the person and recidivism going back in and out of the system and potentially not being able to get a job because they have a record and now that person has to uh, get benefits from social welfare. I mean, we're paying, all of us are paying for all of that. Um, it's very, very expensive. Um, and it doesn't really, I think it doesn't meet a lot of what our goals are as a society as well. Um, and I've been aware of some of these things for, for many years, as many of us have. Um, you know, and whether it's the bad incentives, especially of the private, privately owned prisons, which is sort of, um, that's something that I think people will look back on in the future and be one of the things that they'll be more astonished that we all accepted and allowed. Um, and that often, you know, prisons are called corrections or rehabilitation systems. And usually the opposite of that is what happens is it criminalizes people further um, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, there's really bad issues with sexual assault and rape in prisons. You know, this is something that holds a really weird place in our culture that people have written about um, or, or commented on for many years, that rape in prison is, um, on one hand, treated as a joke in a lot of movies, TV shows, popular uh, culture, like very mainstream uh, culture. Um, on the other hand, it is treated as part of the punishment um, and there were some uh, law classes in college I remember taking where we looked at um, attorneys or judges or others in the criminal justice system who commented specifically on the fact 
that the person that was part of the person's punishment of going to prison was that they may be raped. Um, and it's also a human rights issue, a, a terrible human rights issue. And it's, it's kind of in all three of these places somehow at the same time. Um, and then there's been, you know, some things that I've been involved in, you know, um, like ban the box initiatives, uh, which was, uh, attempts to make it, um, to not allow employers to ask on an employment application of whether someone has, uh, been convicted of a crime or not. They could still ask in the interview. You still had all of the ability to do whatever you wanted after that point. But the idea was giving people a shot at least of getting, of having their resume not thrown in the trash, you know, in the very first step. Um, and as a hiring manager in a couple different governments and in a private company, um, and as a consultant to many organizations, but especially as a hiring manager, um, uh, with local governments, you know, I've tried to do better about this. Um, and I think have done better about this. It's, you know, some of it's actually kind of simple, which is, uh, you know, if something shows pops up on a background check or on a job application, instead of just tossing it and, you know, it's easier not to deal with this you know, you can ask the person for follow-ups. You can get more information about what happened or didn't happen and understand whether this was a mistake they made when they were a kid and does it really matter anymore or is this, you know, something serious and it's indicative of a larger pattern and wouldn't be safe to bring this person into the workplace. Obviously, that's complicated for certain types of jobs, teachers, police officers, things like that. Um, but there's a lot more that we could all do here, just individually, any of us who are in the position to do hiring. Um, I've hired several people uh, in the years who had a um, had something on their criminal record that some others might just have thrown out, but uh, upon further investigation turned out to really not be important at all, um, and to just be the fact the difference between uh, you know especially with some nonviolent drug offenses and things like that, um, you know we have this sort of bad moral luck, uh, bad conception of moral luck where it's not that you're choosing between people who did this thing and didn't do this thing, you're just choosing between people who got caught and didn't get caught. Or you're choosing between people who got caught and didn't have the means to exit the system without leaving a permanent footprint and people who didn't have those means. And so that's not really a great way to make decisions uh, on those sorts of things. Um, so we talked about some of those things, um, but I wanted to share a couple. There's so many things to talk about here, and I can't attempt to cover them in this episode. But I wanted to share two things that I learned a little bit about that I didn't really know much about um, in this area. And so, again, this is in no way a complete uh, overview of uh, prison or criminal justice reform, but just two things that I thought were particularly interesting. Um, one was mugshot reform, um, which is something that, truthfully, I don't really remember hearing that much about in the past. Um, and the issue is that for a lot of people who are uh, arrested for a crime and then later found innocent, um, that, they are, that, they, that they were innocent, they were not guilty of committing that crime, there is already a mugshot that is circulating and potentially publicly, probably publicly available, probably available on the internet. And that person, that's out there now forever. And people are going to be able to use that in ways detrimental to that person, even though they didn't actually do anything wrong. They got arrested for something that they didn't actually do. Um, and so... The argument that is, the argument is, except for certain cases um, where the person might be a danger to a, um, a larger audience um, or in certain crimes, um, that mugshots be private up until the person is convicted. Okay, 
Um, and apparently this is something that the federal government does more than state and county government and local governments do. Um, but that makes some sense to me. I mean, I don't know the issue inside and out. And so I wouldn't pretend to come down conclusively on one side or another. But one of the things that we do a really bad job of is protecting people's privacy um, in this day and age and not allowing the government to go way too far. Um, and so there's arguably sort of a Fourth Amendment issue um, and I think one of the things that is interesting and I've mentioned in other episodes is that as technology gets more machine readable, right? So as data is stored in formats that are easily computerized, manipulated, read by other computers and other humans and distributed. So it's the difference between keeping something in a paper copy in a file cabinet, right? A mugshot there where the only way someone's going to get it is going into that office and filling out a public records request and getting a copy of a printed thing and there's no internet so there's no way to distribute that to a larger audience other than a newspaper etc cetera, etc cetera, right that's how it was but that's not how it is anymore right if that's posted online now it's in a format that anybody can just screenshot copy and paste share save do whatever they want with and so as things become more transmissible and more easily stored um, it is incumbent on the government to protect people's privacy as each of those things ratchet up um, and we do a very bad job of even thinking about that. And so mugshot reform is interesting because it protects people's privacy um, up until the point that they're convicted. Um, so it's an interesting topic and certainly curious if anybody has any thoughts on it to reach out about it. Um, another thing that we talked about was the period of time that it wasn't actually um, problems with uh, prison reentry, but jail reentry. And so the difference between those things um, simply is that jail is where you are up until you are convicted. And then when you are convicted and sentenced, then you serve a term in prison, right? So the jail is the place where you are detained um, up until the point that you are, uh, you know, sentenced in a more permanent fashion. Um, and so a jail might be in a police department or a county holding facility or something like that. One of the big problems is not people coming out of prison and having trouble getting work, but people going to jail um, even if the crime is for a crime where the sentence they are likely to get is probation, where they're going right back, they're going to get sentenced and then go back home. They're still spending a week or two, sometimes more in jail waiting if they can't make uh, bail, for example, or if there is no bail, um, waiting until the point that they are sentenced. Um, and uh, that uh, disproportionately can affect people of lower income statuses, which is really bad because those are the people that if they miss their shift at work for a week or two, they're, they're going to get fired immediately. Regardless, forget whether they get convicted of the crime that they got arrested for just by virtue of missing work. Maybe they're an hourly or a shift employee. They miss a shift. The boss moves on to the next person and that's it. Now they get sentenced, get probation, come back home and not only did we pay to keep that person in jail in the meantime, but we just made them lose their job, which is now putting that person into a place where they have to figure out how to get themselves out of that or take advantage of, um, you know, social benefit or welfare programs, again, that we're all paying for. Um, and so that was another example of something that I wasn't as familiar with and I thought was a really interesting reflection. It really goes against all of our goals doing things. It seems like doing things this way. Um, and so, you know, I'll give it, I'll give uh, kudos to Adam and to F5 for doing this, you know, really important work and to other people who are working in that field. I mean, this is something I'm going to try and cover in more details in a future episode, but thought I would share a few reflections on that um, here. Next, um, I uh, met with uh, um, 
someone who I was connected with who uh, worked for the federal government uh, under the U.S. Department of Agriculture in, doing rural development um, and uh, also had been in the state legislature in North Dakota um, and had some kind of interesting thoughts to share on some of that. And something that we've talked a little bit about here, although not much on the podcast, um, is the importance of internet, especially in rural areas. Now, I'm saying this from an area where there is no internet, but I've also spent a lot of time, um, those of you who know me, you know I spent a lot of time in upstate New York, um, and in that area, there's really not as much cell phone service. It gets a little better every year. Now, as a kid, or as someone much younger, I used to sort of enjoy that, right? As I enjoy being out of contact here, um, because it was nice. You kind of go, uh, you know, upstate and your phone doesn't work and people can't get a hold of you and that's nice take the pressure off but it but it took me a few years um you know through and after college and when i started to get involved in some of these things that actually this is a really big problem from an economic perspective and a political perspective and other perspectives in communities where people live and there's no internet there's no high-speed internet at home and there's no cell service um as well so this area here uh there's no cell service although my guess is that if you hiked up a little bit farther uh, my phone's been on airplane mode uh, even when I was hiking, so I didn't test it out. But my guess is there's probably some up there. And there are some kind of summer and vacation homes um, uh, down by the lake here, and those look like they have wired internet. There's not a lot of people that are living right here um, full time. But in places like that, um, we think about how many things are moving online. And in fact, this came up actually with one of the towns that I did consulting with, um, with Sustainable Jersey's uh, public information and engagement uh, tech assessment over the last year, uh, a township in New Jersey, Hope Township, um, that many of you might be surprised to learn, uh, you know, pockets of the town don't have cell service. And um, as the last time I understood, which was about a month ago, um, there was there was only one high-speed satellite internet provider in the community, and that's it. And there were a lot of people who couldn't get that, and the service was unreliable, or the speeds were slow, and it was something was working with the municipality and trying to help them find ways to better connect with their community, especially over the last year as everything basically went virtual. And this is a small town with a lot of issues actually going on, especially related to overdevelopment um, or development regionally. And they can't get connected to everybody in town because not everybody in town has high-speed internet um, at a time when council meetings are fully virtual and everything like that throughout COVID. So internet in rural areas and internet in general is something that we really need to start um, societally treating as a utility. This is something a lot of people have been talking about for years, um, something I believe for many years as well. Um, and, um, you know, the same way that we expect people to have clean drinking water and sewer access and electric access and things like that, we need to also think, think of them having um, internet access and access to information. Um, so it was interesting chatting with someone who's been involved with that on a couple different levels a little bit and just sort of further uh, reinforcing the need um, that he certainly saw and that I've seen as well in communities how important this really is um, and how much of a stepping stone it is to other kinds of sort of uh, economic opportunity. Something that if you watched or listened to my episode about traveling in Ireland, something I noted um, a little bit out there as well in rural areas. So next, I actually got to spend a little bit of time learning a little bit about some of Fargo's history. Um, and this came from... Um, Brian, who is uh, Kylie, my friend and colleague's husband, and he's an attorney and involved in a lot of land use and historic issues in Fargo. He has an office 
in what was an old uh, cracker and biscuit uh, factory in Fargo. Um, and uh, when he moved in, I mean, he loved the history of the space and painstakingly went through um, fleshing out all these historical documents, uh, photographs, you know, hired an artist to retouch. I mean, you know, it was amazing the work that he went through. And I'm going to do a little bit, a short episode just about that as well. Um, because it was really interesting. Um, I'll show a couple of the pictures and videos uh, while I'm talking about this. Um, uh, but it was pretty cool. So he traced back the whole history of the building about 100 years um, and went through kind of each of the different iterations of it and had, you know, hired an artist to, um, you know, look at photographs which had like some broken or blurry pieces and then would take similar carriages from the same photographs from Fargo from the same time period and use those to recreate. I mean, some really cool kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and it was interesting walking through a little bit of the history there and just interesting, again, thinking about the things that happened in the places where you are. Um, I mean, I think about that in this, uh, you know, beautiful area here, there's a few signs around with some information about some of the people that have come before. Um, and it's been especially interesting on some of my travels, especially through North Dakota, which how, with how, with how many native, um, and indigenous, uh, communities had been in these parts well before, um, anyone from Europe had ever heard of anything um, here. And so um, so back to, to Fargo, you know, it's interesting being in the building and, you know, thinking about that history. And I think about that all the time. You know, the house that I lived in for the last year was built sometime in the early 1800s. The property records at 1800, not sure exactly when it was. Um, and sometimes I would just sort of sit in the living room and, you know, and reflect on the fact that there were people in this same living room living in this house that lived there before electricity. Uh, that may have lived there before trains, that lived there before the Civil War. I mean, incredible thinking about that. So they're sitting in that living room, you know, 200 years ago. What were they imagining people 200 years later would be doing if they were imagining that at all? Um, and so it's one of the things I love about, you know, kind of historic preservation and not just historic preservation, but like historic information unearthing. Um, is just understanding what's come before us. Losing that context is something that would be a shame, um, but it's something I feel like is slipping away a little bit um, at large in our culture and something that we should spend a little bit more time thinking about where we came from and where we might be going. And that helps place us a little bit better where we are now. Um, and so again, I may do a little bit more about that. Um, then I met with some uh, individuals out in Western North Dakota um, near uh, Bismarck. Um, and one of the individuals uh, was part of the MHA Nation, um, was a former council member on a tribal council for the MHA Nation, which is a unified kind of governance organization um, for three different uh, native indigenous uh, tribes in, uh, in North Dakota. And um, what we talked about, uh, we, we chatted um, about a, a handful of different issues. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the issues that they were working on, for example, recently winning uh, a pretty major battle to get um, more Native American uh, content part of American history in the school system in North Dakota, which seems like an obvious thing and something that we should certainly do a better job of everywhere. Um, uh, not telling the sort of version of history that minimizes um, some of the tragedies of our history and also some of the um, other players. Um, and uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's fair um, for our history to be so 
uh, sort of focused on us as the focal point of the history. Um, and that's something that is hard to not do, but is kind of important is to try and tell the history from a more objective, uh, multifaceted lens. So they won a battle with that in North Dakota to get that um, into public education, which is great. It was also interesting just chatting with him and a couple other people in his coffee shop. Um, is, uh, you know, they were, uh, there was a lot of talk about what was happening with oil prices. Um, and that's a, a more, a larger industry in parts of Western North Dakota. Um, and it just sort of reminded me, this came up in Montana, which I'll share about in a future episode in regards to coal. Um, and it's something that I've been familiar with in, um, in Pennsylvania uh, related to coal. But it's just sort of how areas become um, tied to, have their identity intertwined with, uh, the, um, the, the economies of those areas. Um, and that it's hard to really look at issues objectively and the pros and cons when your culture, society, community is dependent upon a certain thing working in a certain way. And so, uh, you know, that it's just, it's just a reminder, especially, especially when it comes to energy and we try to talk about new forms of energy, um, which again, I'll talk a little more about in my Montana episode. Um, but, you know, to have communities that are sort of wed to being coal communities, communities that are wed to being oil communities, where they sort of live and die based on what's happening in those industries. And you certainly can't blame people for feeling that way, but it just is a layer that's really important to appreciate when trying to think about how to transition communities to new jobs from new energy sources. It's not as simple as just replacing one with one. There is a deeply ingrained culture, part of that other energy source, part of the history um, of that area. And I think understanding and appreciating that is a really important thing before you try to talk about moving to anything new or different. Um, and so that was kind of interesting hearing about, um, a little bit as well, um, you know, with the oil industry in, uh, in North Dakota. Um, so that's a little bit of my, uh, my take on North Dakota. I really like visiting Fargo. It was really fun. You know, had a few kind of chance and chat encounters with random folks, uh, walked around a lot, um, you know, and Fargo's had a little bit of a lively scene, NDSU, North Dakota State University is there, lots of restaurants and bars and kind of some, uh, some cool shops. There's a lot of construction happening. Uh, my friend Kylie joked that, um, uh, there were two seasons in Fargo or some people would joke there's two seasons in Fargo. There's the winter and then there's construction season. Um, it <laughs> seemed to be true. There was, or, ro or sorry, winter and road work season. Um, and so that seemed to be, uh, that seemed to be sort of true. Although the weather was amazing and beautiful when I was there. Um, and there were some outdoor green spaces, uh, in the downtown that seemed to be part of some newer developments that people were really taking advantage of as well. Oh, and of course I should mention, and I'll put a picture up here. Of course we visited the wood chipper from the movie Fargo. Obviously we had to do that and it was the actual wood chipper from the movie. Um, and so I've got a picture there and there was kind of a visitor center that we went to and there was some cool stuff with some dinosaurs, uh, and fossils, which is a, um, there's a lot of that in this area, North Dakota, Montana too, as well. So I really enjoyed it. People were very friendly. Um, the community had a really nice low key vibe to it. Um, and I kind of, I enjoyed all the conversations with everybody that I met and enjoyed just getting a little glimpse into the culture, um, of a place that's very different, but also very similar, um, to elsewhere even in places like Fargo, I mean, they're struggling with development issues. It's something that I've come across in almost every community that I've ever seen or ever visited or ever worked in. 
Um, and that's something I'm gonna actually dedicate some serious time to in an upcoming episode as I'm just realizing how uh, widespread issues with uh, effective development really are. Um, and there were some issues um, in Fargo, my understanding uh, with the city, uh, with NDSU, with the community in different neighborhoods, residential neighborhoods. Um, and so, and it was just, um, you know, kind of a challenging dynamic there. And um, that's happening in so many places. Um, it's happened in South Orange, uh, in Leonia, in Lambertville, happened in tons of towns that I've uh, consulted with and worked with. Um, and it's happening all over the country. It's happening in Montana as well. Um, and so I'm going to dedicate an episode just to sort of some redevelopment type issues because it's also something that I think there's a lot of um, kind of uh, cross-partisan and cross-demographic alignment in what our values are. So I'll um, dedicate some serious time to that in a future episode and just want to thank, uh, you know, everybody in Fargo for being just so welcoming. And uh, if you're heading out in that direction, you're traveling or anything, definitely recommend stopping by um, and checking things out um, in Fargo. So thanks for tuning into this uh, special Travels with Torpy episode. Uh, hopefully the wind noise and everything wasn't too bad. The sights seem to be worth it, at least from my perspective here. And I'll talk to you all soon. Hey everyone, Alex here. If you want to find show notes, sources, and more information, you can do so in the YouTube description or online on my website at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or feedback at alex at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com or on social media. And if you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a positive review, subscribing, liking, or sharing this episode with a friend. Thanks again for listening.